through 13. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is God's good word for us. Good morning. Is this on? We're good. Kim, thank you so much. Uh, you may not know this about Kim and I, but she and I were born at the same hospital. Uh, we uh, are from the same area of the world, and her accent is actually what my brain sounds like. Um, and so it's very comforting to me. I met Kim and Craig years and years ago before they went to live overseas. Um, uh, we met before, I've known them longer than I've known my wife, and they've been such dear friends to me even before I was married and then uh, through my marriage, and, and they're just such kind servants to my family and to many of us here, and so we're really thankful for them. We love you guys. My name is Noah Joyner, um, and my job this morning is to help us continue walking through uh, the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3. Last week, Carson led us through the end of chapter 2, and I have a test for you. Does anybody remember what Carson said last week? Not the whole thing. You don't have to, like, quote the whole thing. But he was telling us about what a servant of the Lord, or at North Wake, the way that we say that, maturing and ministering worshipers, worshipers of God, what should they be like? He gave us three words that all started with a cuss sound, single syllable. Anybody remember? Huh? Keen. Clean and kind, right? Keen, clean, and kind is how he described what a servant of the Lord should be like from what the Apostle Paul was saying. A more simple way to say that might be focused, pure, and gentle. He talked about a life that, that cuts straight. And this week we're going to switch it up a little bit. Uh, we're going to continue through the passage, but we're going to spend more time looking at those who have swerved from the faith. 
more focus will be given to those types of people. And in our passage, there will be creeps and captors and magicians and deceivers and posers and imposters. And you're going to have some questions as we go along. And I'll try to answer as many of those questions as I can this morning for the purpose of thinking about and clearing up how we apply this passage this morning at 943 on September 17th of 2023. This matters to us today. And that will be my job this morning is to help us figure out how this matters to us today. And I hope that I can help you do that. You might have some questions uh, after, you know, after I'm done. You might still have questions. I'd love to talk to you about that. We always have space at the end of the service. Come, we'll chat. may not be able to answer all your questions, but I can try to help you uh, see what I learned as I studied. So uh, would you pray for me as we get ready to look at the word together? Pray for me, pray with me, either one. Father, we do ask that you would uh, use my study uh, this morning to uh, say clearly what your word says, uh, to open it up and to lay it bare. Uh, We ask that because you, Holy Spirit, are the primary writer of this word, that you would meet with us, that you would uh, make it come to light and come to life in us, uh, that it would be clear how we should respond and how we should live out of it. God, empower us to live as you would have us to do. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. I began by saying that one of my goals this morning is to try and clear up some questions that the passage raises, and here we have one already. So when Paul says the last days, what is he referring to? And at first glance, the future tense may, language makes it, uh, it makes it seem like this is a far-off time. It also has this sense of finality. So to say that it speaks of future and final days, that would be correct. But on the other hand, Paul will, in verse 5, tell Timothy to avoid certain people in those last days. So Paul at least thought that those final and future days were near. And this this is not uncommon in the Scriptures, where future and final things are presented as near and imminent. Uh, That's a very, very common thing in the scriptures. To which you might say, so, are we living in the last days? I actually had someone uh, ask me that direct question when they heard what I was learning or what I was teaching. To which I would say, we are closer to those days than Paul and Timothy were. So we're at least closer to those days than Paul and Timothy were. So we should soberly consider how Paul tells Timothy to live in those last days. Because we are either in those last days or near those last days, just as Timothy was. So this word matters to us. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 to 5. He says that in those last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. So the next question you might have is this. Is Paul talking about people out there or people in here? Are these church people or community people? Do these people identify with Jesus or not? And I'm inclined to say that Paul is talking about those inside the church, 
inside the church community, those who show up as Christians. He says they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. They look like, they show up as Christians. They appear as godly but do not live in submission to God's power. They deny his power through their lives. Godliness is not having its way with them. So like decaf coffee, it has the appearance of coffee, but not the power of coffee. I don't understand decaf coffee. I really don't. Or like a watermelon that looks ripe on the outside, but when you cut it open, it's, it's barely red. It's hard, and it's not sweet at all. Or better yet, imagine if you had a cantaloupe, and you pick it up at the store, and you smell it, and it smells perfect. It smells ready. It looks ready. But you slice it open. In, inside of it, you find rotten meat. This is essentially what Paul is doing in verses 2 to 4. He's laying open the insides, the motivations, the heart of those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And last week, Carson pointed out three characteristics of a servant of the Lord. And here we see a contrast to that with what I'm going to call the servants of self. And I'll use that language over and over again in this passage because I think that's a good title for them, the servants of self. And here's three characteristics of the servant of self. They love self, they hate neighbor, and they oppose God. And so what I tried to do is to take each of the uh, descriptors and put them in three categories labeled uh, love of self, hate of neighbor, and opposition to God. So they love themselves, they're conceited, they're proud, lover of self, arrogant, lovers of pleasure. And so for the lover of self, all motivations, conversations, and actions lead back to the self. It leads back to them. They love themselves, and they think you should too. Second, they hate their neighbor. They're abusive. They're treacherous. They're reckless. They're slanderous. They're brutal. They have no self-control. And so the servant of self is dangerous, especially to those who refuse to think of them as highly as they think of themselves. And lastly, they oppose God. They're ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, disobedient to parents, lovers of money, not loving good. And so the servant of self opposes God through subtle and hidden sins that present as vices. Remember, they have an appearance of godliness. They have sins that present as virtues, sorry, like being self-made, determined, convicted, truthful, independent thinking. Right? All of those sound virtuous and can seem godly, but for the one who is a lover of self, a self-servant, they can actually be opposition to God. If they had a favorite internal mantra, it would be, oppose the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and hate your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Paul is warning Timothy against letting these influencers guide the church away from the gospel of Christ. And while I do think that this, is, this passage is most pointedly addressing those who teach and influence with words in the church, I also believe it's possible to have these self-servants at every level of church life, from Sunday morning sermon to small groups to serving coffee. No church is immune to filling itself with self-servants. And Paul is saying, it's a difficulty that the church will have to face at some time. 
And we may be in that time. So what does Paul insist that we do in reference to these servants of self? You might be surprised by what you hear. The ESV simply says, avoid such people. You might be thinking, so Noah, you're telling me that Paul's solution for dealing with those who wrongly influence the church is to dodge them? I imagine Timothy kind of seeing one of these guys coming down the street at him, and he's like, dips down an alleyway and like hides. That may not be exactly what Paul means. The word here for avoid has the sense of turning away or turning away from. And some translations choose that language instead. So we might conclude this avoiding is more active than passive. Actively avoiding influence from these folks by turning away from them relationally. That may mean a conversation where you go to them and express your concerns about how they treat people, how they live in reference to God, or how self-centered they actually are. If they listen, then you've served your brother or sister as they walk with Jesus. If they will not listen, then what else are you to do? Servants of self do not have the ability to engage in Christ-centered relationships because they want themselves to be at the center of every relationship. So the denial of Christian fellowship is an unavoidable, unavoidable consequence of their actions. Paul's words sound very similar to Jesus in Matthew 18. He's picking up on the same themes, I believe. So, I know you might be hearing me say something like this. The holy people in the church should avoid and turn away from the unholy and sinful people in the church. To which I would say, I'm absolutely not saying that at all. Rather, I'm saying something more like this. The church is a safe place for people in process. Those who are growing in love for Christ and others, who know they are sinful and selfish, but truly hate that reality about themselves. That is the power of godliness. It changes us to live more like Christ and less like me over time. The church is a safe place for people in process, the process of becoming like Christ. But the church is not a safe place for imposters. The church is not a hideout for servants of self. And this is what Paul is addressing with Timothy. If you're a person who hates people all week long, your kids, your spouse, your coworkers, your neighbors. If you're a person who acts primarily out of self-interest and self-service, carefully choosing how people see and receive you, if you are actively opposing God in the secret places of your life through private, unrepentant sin, then show up to church stuff and put on a godly appearance for a few hours, then only to return back to self-service and self-advancement the rest of the week. If that is you, I hope you are very uncomfortable, uncomfortable near the family of God. I hope those who follow Jesus will love you enough to speak frankly with you and withhold from you the relational intimacy reserved only for those who follow Jesus as king of their lives. It's also my hope that the withholding of relationship will make you long for intimacy with God, a relationship where he occupies the throne of your life and you love him with all you have. God commands those who follow him to turn away and I believe that is so you will turn to him. Early in my walk with the Lord, I was in a small group. I was the only single guy in that group, and these folks loved me really well. So I was watching the other guys as they led their families and as they cared for their wives. 
And there was a leader in that group who took an interest in mentoring me. He and I grew close over a few years. And I began to see things about him that concerned me. But I was being mentored by him. So I was not sure how to call him out on those concerns. One night after Steph and I, uh, after Steph and I met and were married, he and his wife had us over for dinner. And after dinner, the four of us were standing in the kitchen talking. And the wife of my mentor said something that did not sit well with him. He looked at her and he yelled at her. I could tell that was not a new or infrequent occurrence in their relationship. Her eyes dropped. She put her head down as to make the words stop. He looked at Steph and I as to apologize for what we just saw, not his actions, but hers. Over the next year, we would learn that this man had been indulging in private sins against his wife and many others. He would later abandon his wife to pursue his sin. He had an appearance of godliness. He was likable. He spoke well. He knew what to say. But he denied the power of godliness through the way he lived in private. I regret many things in my life. But one of my greatest regrets is not confronting that man that night in that kitchen. This man needed someone to gently confront him and call him to be honest about himself and his opposition to God. His wife needed someone to intervene, but I did not have the courage to do so at that time. It takes courage and confidence in Christ to do what Paul is asking us to do. Paul said it this way in chapter 2. The follower of Christ is to correct his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Note the call to gentleness and the need for God to grant repentance to those who oppose God and his truth. Here we see that the servant of self is also a slave of Satan. And this is a work that only God can do. Freedom from slavery to the devil cannot be accomplished apart from his work. So as God's family, we're asked to have corrective and a gentle disposition to those who present as Christians, yet do not live like it. And we do this out of love and with love. I often wonder, if, if I would have confronted that man that night in that kitchen, would God have granted him repentance? Would he have listened? Regardless of the outcome, we are called to say something when we see something like that. So is there someone you need to gently correct or avoid for the sake of love? Someone that you need to turn away from for their good with the hope that God will grant them repentance? That's the only way I know how to apply this passage. To be honest to this passage and do what Paul is asking us to do, I don't know what else to tell us to do. 
You might be asking yourself this morning, what do I do if I discover I'm a servant of self? And ironically, I would advise you to do the same. Though you cannot avoid yourself, you can turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. To change directions. Turning away from sin. That's what repentance means. That word repentance that keeps coming up, it actually means this. You're walking this way, and you turn and walk another direction. It's actually what it means. You're called to change directions, turning away from your sin and turning to God for help. And you can do that this morning if you like. And if you are willing, I'd like to lead you in doing that right now. I know that every single person in this room reads that list and says, there's something about me in here. And the Spirit of God does this beautiful thing where he taps you on the shoulder and he says, let's turn around. And that's what he wants to do. There's others here that live that way, but present as Christians that have never turned. And I want to lead all of us in asking what God would have us do in response to these lists that are so offensive to us because they're often so true of us. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would do a work in our hearts that as we see this list that is just nasty, but I see parts of myself, that you would turn me around, leading me in repentance. And for the one who shows up here week to week, putting on a faux Christianity, an appearance of godliness, that God, you would give grace to that man or that woman, that child today. You would grant them repentance, leading to life and free them from slavery to the devil. By your power, we ask that you would do a work like that in each of us in specific ways as this specific list puts us in a corner and confronts us. Lord, we are glad to be confronted because you are our king and we want to live for your honor. Have your way with us, Lord. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Look with me in 2 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7. For among them these servants of self, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Paul continues to describe those servants of self with a little greater specificity here. And it's not surprising that those who have been captured by Satan, as we saw in 2.26, are now doing the capturing in verse 6. So who are their victims? Literally, little or weak women. And the word here literally means little women. So is Paul saying that they are physically capturing women under a certain size or a certain height or a certain weight? No. Doubtful. I don't think that's what he's saying. If we consider the word he uses for capture, we get a bit of clarity. Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians 10.5 when he talks about taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ in the pursuit of thinking rightly about God. So it seems that Paul is pointing to a type of mental weakness or smallness in these particular women that make them especially vulnerable to these creepers. Now we know that Paul is not making a categorical statement concerning women being weak-minded because of what he says about Timothy's mother and grandmother. If you look in 2 Timothy 1.5, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that first 
that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Here he holds these two women up as examples of sincere and informed faith. So what is it about these particular women that make them so vulnerable? Is it low education, low IQ, or low self-esteem? I don't think that that is the case. As verse 7 tells us that they are always learning, that may indicate that they have been quite educated. The passage seems to indicate something more foundational than this. It says they never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They are led astray by passions, and they are burdened or weighed down by sin. And as I read this passage, I can't help but think of a boat loaded to the brim, loaded down with water lapping over the sides, the boats being blown from place to place by every wind that comes by, so it can never arrive at the harbor that it's intended to go. It's a vulnerable boat, close to sinking, so it's very easy to overtake. If you are mentally unengaged with who God is, if you don't think very much about God and who he is, if you don't know what to do with your sins, and if you're driven by your passions, if you aren't sure what is true, whether you're a man or a woman, you are in danger of capture. The gospel of Jesus Christ throws overboard all weights that sink us. The gospel blows us home to where we find true knowledge of God. Jesus is our safe harbor. And if you want to think deep and well about God, run after the gospel. If you are burdened by your sin, remember the gospel. If truth is feeling a bit foggy for you these days, Soak in the gospel. Go back home. Return to the safe harbor that God intended you to arrive in. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, you and I are indescribably sinful and rightly deserving of divine punishment. But God, being both just and merciful, saw your desperate need and my desperate need and the danger that we were in, and he provided a door of delivery for you and for me, and his name is Jesus. And before you ever realized your plight or ruin, he bled out his life all the way to death so that you could be filled all the way up to life, now and forever. That is where Christians live. That's home base. That is safe harbor. That is the shore that we arrive at. We may visit other places, but we always come home to the gospel. So let me ask you, where are you camping out these days? What do you think about? What are you passionate about? Do your thoughts drift towards God and how he has been so kind to you in Jesus? When you sin, do you remember the gospel? Do you remember how Jesus' death makes you free from sin? How vulnerable are you to those who are creeping around, trying to take you captive with false hope and false gospels? What are you afraid of and what is the solution? 
Notice how often we are told to be afraid and how often people sell false hope surrounding those fears. It goes like this. The world is coming to an end. We're all going to die. Buy gold. That always confused me. The world's coming to an end. We're all going to die. Buy an EV. Really? That's going to fix it? The world's coming to an end. We're all going to die. Vote for me. This is the basis, the basics of what people do when they want to take you captive. Be afraid. I'll save you. It's it. Watch them do it because this is what they do. But the truth is this. The world will end. You will die. It's going to happen. Guaranteed. World's coming to an end and you will die. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Keep trusting in Jesus. He will bring you home. Yes, the world's going to end. You're going to die. And the solution is keep trusting in Jesus. It ain't super fancy. Go back home. They say you can't go back home. You can go back home. With Jesus, you can go home and stay home. And he'll bring you home. Look at me in 2 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 9. It says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these or those two men. Now, Paul is seeking to tie these creepers who are taking these women captive to an Old Testament example of deceit and folly. Paul mentions Janus and Jambres as like a shorthand reference to Exodus 7. And you'll notice when we read the passage in just a moment that these names are not actually mentioned in the passage. But somewhere along the way, these two names got assigned to what takes place in Exodus 7 through traditions and culture and all of that. So by the time of Paul and his writing here in 2 Timothy, it's kind of shorthand. And the names Janus and Jambres have become synonymous with foolishly opposing God. And I imagine those names being reserved for when you did something really dumb and somebody would say something like, nice work, dumb and dumber. You know, like it just is kind of pejorative. So as Benedict Arnold is to betrayal and treason, so Janus and Jambres are to foolishly opposing God. Let's see what happened. Look with me in Exodus 7, verses 8 to 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and, just, and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his serpent before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent, or cast down his staff, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they and the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed all their staffs. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Paul has warned Timothy about the coming, about what's coming up. Like there's these hard times coming. 
And he wants to comfort him with God's prevailing power. He wants to remind him, but don't forget, God has a prevailing power. He wants Timothy to recall these two men, Moses and Aaron, who with the help of God prevailed, even though they were up against what seemed to be like a mountain of opposition, Pharaoh and servants and wise men and sorcerers and magicians. He wants to remind him likewise that they will prevail by the power of God. And just as Janus and Jambres and all the other magicians of Egypt were proved to be powerless, so will the servants of self who are creeping around to capture anyone they can. I love this passage in Exodus. It's, it's as if God is saying, nice try, silly magicians of Egypt. You do tricks, but these men have power. They have true power from God. And the power of God in Christ will prevail in our time over all the trickery of those who oppose God. They will be shown for what they are. In time, all will see. And Paul is telling Timothy, he's telling us, keep trusting God. He will make it clear who is who. His snakes will eat up their snakes. His staff will eat up their staff. It will be shown who is who. Look with me at 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my life, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So Paul and Timothy are now contrasted with Janus and Jambres. Paul setting the example and Timothy following that example. And notice how his list compares to that list that goes with the servants of self. Not just his words, but his, contact, his conduct, his intentions, his faith, and his love over a long period of time. He's something different, and his life has shown that. The power of God on display in his life. So think of this as a resume or a eulogy, a job description, all three put together in one. Paul's reminding Timothy of God's faithfulness, recounting Christ's work in his life and his heart. And then he's also inviting Timothy to continue following his pattern in ministry. Regardless of what others are doing, keep on following Jesus, just like I have, Paul is saying. Second Timothy 3, 12 and 13. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul spends most of his second letter to Timothy creating two categories of people. I think you've seen this from the beginning. He's, he's laying out two types of people, two categories of people. And those have, and he's making those really clear right now in this, in this section. Those who have been and remained faithful to Christ and his gospel, and those who deny the faith through their conduct and teaching. Two categories. He draws them out with sobering clarity here, and he, he kind of abbreviates them. The godly and the imposters, the persecuted and the deceived. 
And name by name, you could go through the book of 2 Timothy and filter each person into each of those categories. And sadly, in Paul's life, he saw some who seemed godly get moved over into the imposter category. And brothers and sisters, if you've been at this following Jesus thing for very long, you've had the same experience. Friends follow for a while and they fall away. Authors and artists who once wrote for Jesus now deny the faith. Pastors who you looked up to, you read, you followed, you listened to them, their conduct has disqualified them. We have lists and lists of both personal and public examples of this. One spouse walks forward with Christ, but the other one gives up. We know these stories and we've lived these stories along with Paul. We can sympathize with him and empathize with him in this reality. So here's the question for each of us. What category would those who know you best place you in? Because that seems to be what Paul is doing here. Having watched their lives, heard their message, he's placing them in categories. And when they place you in those categories, is that because of an appearance you give off or because you live a godly life? What's at the heart of that? Furthermore, where, where will you be? Where will you be standing five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And as I look around this church, I see people that I've been in, in this with for 20 years. And man, I'm encouraged. Seriously. Like to see y'all's faces and y'all kept on and it's like we're still doing this the same way in the same direction. That encourages me. Does that encourage you? Yeah. Let's keep at it. Five years, 10 years, 20 years. Where will you be standing? How will you hold fast to Christ? How will you stand in the gospel? What is your hope in life and death? So what is your hope in life and death? Christ alone is our hope in life and death. That's how we stand in the gospel. That's how we keep moving forward, is that doesn't change. We always come back to home base. You might learn some new things and think some new things and see some new things and hear some new things and experience some new things, but we always come back home. The gospel is our home. Christ is our hope in life and death. That's it. That's all we got. We're going to sing about that now. Aren't we going to sing about that, Daniel? I'm really excited about singing about that. I really am. I'm serious. I'm excited to sing about our hope in Christ with you all. And as I pray to conclude our time, I do pray that the power of Christ would continue to change you. And for some of us, begin to change us even this day. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful that we have one home and you have made it for us in Christ, a safe harbor where we can arrive. Father, as I think about this life uh, with these people over all these years, man, I'm encouraged, though discouraged by, by some that I mentioned, encouraged by so many others. And that's what Paul's doing in this letter, Lord. I see it. He's mentioning those that have encouraged him, those that have discouraged him, but he knows it's all finding its hope in Christ. And that over time, you, Lord, 
Your snakes will, sw- will swallow up their snakes. You will prevail, and you will be shown as the one who is truly and wise. So uh, we sing now of the great hope that we have in Christ and this great gospel he has secured for us. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.